This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Justice for All. And joining me from state of Ohio, I believe it's Ohio, is, is my guest author, uh, Dr. James K. Uphoff. And welcome, sir, to the program. Glad to be here. Thank you for calling, Jay. My pleasure. And the subtitle of this, of course, is the Pledge of Allegiance. There is certainly a um, uh, a philosophical and a um, patriotic bend to your book. How did you decide to write this? What was the reason that you felt it was a, a good thing to to share your ideas and insight? Well, for one thing, I found that the local Fox TV station of uh, Channel WRGT 45 airs each morning on TV news a tape of a specific class saying their Pledge of Allegiance. Mm. It may be kindergartners, it may be sixth graders, but, you know, a range of kids. Um, and the last three words of the Pledge of Allegiance are, and justice for all. Mm. But we've had many examples in our society, especially in the last years, of justice not being for all. And that raised a question, well, what is justice for all? And thus the effort to write the book and try to look at many of the aspects of our justice system and what are ways of making improvements in that system great 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 idea the um the doctorate degree that you have is in education so you spend a lot of years helping people learn things and this passion has continued with you even into uh, the the authorship of this book yes i my uh, undergrad area was very much on liberal arts i had a major in history and a major in geography and a minor in political science, and a minor in English. Um, and so it, it's kind of pulling me back to that period uh, of life and so on. But I was a professor of education with emphasis in social studies education. Incredible. In my years at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. Fabulous. You, uh, in this 214 pages, the research that had to go into it, because it's not just opinions uh, totally. I mean, it, it, it's observations and uh, maybe opinions by some of the uh, content of the book. Share with my listeners, how long did it take to assemble the material that you have shared in, in your book? I collected, uh, first of all, I need to tell you that I was in prison uh, for uh, uh, having possession of child pornography. Hmm. Now, never was I ever charged or anyone ever uh, accused me of uh, having contact with people, but I did have some materials that were in my possession and in my computer. But that year that I spent in a public prison, a federal prison, I looked at it as a type of sabbatical and so I was regularly gathering information, data, so on. Then when I was released 
uh, after 15 months of service, uh, I was uh, uh, challenged by my judge to, uh, now, Jim, you are going to write a book about this, aren't you? Mm. I have written a number of other books all about education yes. topic. But, and I said, uh, yes, sir, I am. I've been collecting data. And so for the all of uh, 14 and 15, I was collecting data. Then all of uh, 15, the, well, the rest of 15 and all of 16 and in well into 17, I was collecting data uh, and writing the book. And the book became uh, published, was, was finished in December of 2017. 2017. You have included uh, or at least done the research uh, through hundreds of local and national news accounts. Of those news accounts and stories that you researched, what do you think is going to be the most alarming or exciting that the reader will discover in the pages of your book? Well, I think if the reader has to come to any major kind of a conclusion for him or herself, it will be, why do we have prisons, jails, and other forms of incarceration? And we are the most incarcerating nation in the world, really. Really. Hmm. But, so why do we have that? If it is only for punishment, and in many cases people believe that that punishment should last a lifetime as opposed to the five years or the one year or the 10, 20 years of a sentence, then they have to ask themselves, why do we also say that we are so upset when people do eventually get out of prison that the excuse me, Easy the recidivation rate, right. re repeating their problem, mm -hmm. is uh, much too high? Yes. They ask why, and what I'm asking in, in the book is what are the elements that are preventing people from getting jobs, from living where they need to do, from returning to a positive tax-producing uh, form of life in society, which would mean rehabilitation. Absolutely. That, and that's, that's what I'm arguing for, is, is the effective kind of a system that produces people who contribute to society rather than being a drain on society for potentially their entire life. It is an incredible system when you look at it from that perspective. There are a lot of individuals who are incarcerated, some who are innocent, and uh, there's also those who are guilty. I have a, uh, a close friend whose uh, teenage son uh, got into some difficulty, and when I say difficulty, um, it ended up being taking the life of a fellow student. And he is now serving, I think, 40 years uh, for for that crime. Uh, he, he is he was almost underage at the time. I would say underage. He wasn't quite 18 at the time. So it's a very difficult thing to look at that because, you know, what caused it? Why did it happen? 
what is the outcome of that? How can he be a contributing member of society that will benefit society when he is released, if he ever is? Those are complicated uh, complicated stories and, and complicated uh, topics, and those are the types of things you are addressing in your book. The, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance itself, what is the history of that, and why do you feel perhaps there is a need to focus on the content of the pledge? Well, number one, it is not directly related to uh, our system of government, mm. other than that it was adopted a number of years ago and, and now is used and, and uh, observed by many as being the most important thing that we do with young people to help make them good citizens. Yes. And because it is now so familiar that local TV stations are even telecasting or taping the uh, uh, reciting of the pledge uh, and then putting it on the air. It is something that uh, we all do seem to agree with. Uh, The fact that some very prominent uh, NFL players saw it as a problem of having to stand for the, um, not the pledge, but for the playing of the national anthem. Right. And people didn't realize that, whoa, Constitution says they have every right to not stand, Mm -hmm. to bow, to kneel, to do anything, and that they are being very privately, quietly, are being very proud of the fact that we do need justice for all, and therefore they are refusing to stand for the national anthem, but a lot of the people that go to the NFL games don't see that, and the the fact of uh, their free right of assembly and free right of of, uh, expression um, is is bad, and they're they're bad people. Hmm. The controversial aspects of your book, are there any that are not, I won't say not mainstream, but are are going to startle the reader? Uh, Is there something that you wanted to achieve that you were able to do so in print? Well, I think one of the things that uh, has has bothered me is I have looked at uh, the, the entire situation is that in way, way too many cases, and, and this happens just all over the place these days, that uh, people have been accused of things that they may not have actually done, mm. or that we have a bail system which has put people in prison, having debtor prisons, because they were poor. They simply couldn't afford to pay the fine uh, that was being assessed for for uh, a, a missing taillight or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. They spent our days in jail. Well, that's being addressed. Yes, Southern Poverty Law Center has, has filed, among other group, groups, has filed a number of cases and uh, to try to eliminate local jurisdictions who use those kinds of fines and and that jailing system to raise money for their own local system. Yep. 
Well, I, I, I believe you. I, I believe that does happen. I, I've got a, a family member, I will say, uh, that's having some difficulty with the judicial system and with the, actually, it's immigration, a strange, I'm, I'm from Canada. So, you know, we, we do strange things up there and, and, uh, the United States does some strange things on, on immigration. We've had uh, a long, difficult time because of red tape red tape is just uh you know very difficult to get through sometimes uh, this book 214 pages or so uh has there been an opportunity for others outside of family members and close friends to read and uh, give you an opinion of what you've written well my my, my judge <laughs> my wife and i went down and our, our my probation officer uh, arranged a meeting with our my judge who is a long time uh uh, federal uh, judge and presented him with uh, uh, a copy, in fact, a couple of copies of the book, mm. uh, in that, well, I did follow your su- your suggestion, uh, <laughs> which I viewed as more of a direction, right. uh, and uh, uh, gave the book to him, and in a letter that he had written to our my son, uh, indicated that he had not only read it and found it very interesting, has shared it with a number of colleagues who were like mind. Wow. And uh, then it, it was uh, reviewed by several places. Uh, ben Welton uh, from Forward Reviews in February uh, said that uh, my the book Justice for All takes the very concept of justice as its centerpiece, examining how it is integral to American society, how it has gone awry in American life, and how related problems can be fixed. And he ends, he ends his review that the book, Justice for All, is an engaging read and raises salient points about America's current state of affairs. And then a very recent review uh, from a Pacific Book Review, and they gave the book uh, uh, what they call their book Pacific Book Review Star. Beautiful. And that's awarded to books of excellent merit. And uh, Ella Vincent is the writer of the review, and uh, she says that the Justice for All is a well-researched book which draws support from respected newspapers and studies to support its views. Uphoff's writing shows his expertise as a teacher with his exploration of the issue of prison reform. His writing humanizes prisoners and shows that many of them are not evil but are just people who made terrible choices and deserve a second chance. Beautifully put. Uh, that's, uh, that's a great commendation for your book. The title, again, is Justice for All. Author James K. Uphoff, a Doctor of Education. Sir, where can my listeners get copies of your book? Uh, it is available from Amazon. Um, and, well, let's see, it, on paperback, I think it's uh, thirteen ninety nine is is the price. Um, for hardback, it's uh, I, boy, I think it's twenty three ninety nine, mm-hmm. and then I think they also have it available as, as a what do you call it, an ebook? Uh, yes, or a, Kindle. Uh, I think it's Kindle. They have it. Yeah, it, that it may well be that. Uh, I I tend to be um, enough old fashioned. Uh, well, I, I am now eighty, uh, but uh, I. I I tended to go with the paperback most, and, and <laughs> most of my friends uh, have, have found it to uh, that to be a, a reasonable uh, 
way to look. Well, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story on Justice for All. Uh, Listeners, you can do a search under the author's name if you wish. It's James, middle initial K, Uphoff, U-P-H-O-F-F, and uh, can locate not only this book, but anything that may come out in the future. A pleasure visiting with you today, sir, and best of luck with this book, and uh, hopefully my listeners will jump on board and uh, salute you by buying your book and uh, learning more about your observations. Thank you again for being a part of today's program. Right. All of my proceeds from this book are donated, are going to be donated to, like, Southern Poverty Law Center or the Montgomery County uh, 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 Juvenile Judge, Juvenile Justice System uh, uh, Foundation here in uh, Dayton, Ohio. So uh, it's, it's not for my uh, financial growth, but rather to be a part of the solutions. Absolutely great. I encourage my listeners not only to get a look at this book, but also support the causes that you've mentioned. Thank you again for being a part of today's program. I appreciate it. Thank My you very pleasure. much. My pleasure. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author House and Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Fried Oyster Sandwich, and joining me from Ohio is the author Lloyd E. Gross. Welcome, sir, to the program. Well, thank you, Jay. I guess you want me to tell you how this all started. Well, yeah, that's that would be interesting. Oh, go ahead. Finish the introduction. Uh, that's okay. I was just I was just going to mention to my listeners. In addition to being an author, you are also a uh, a re- retired or semi-retired pastor. You're pastor emeritus of a church uh, in the area, and uh, you have decided to write a book that has an interesting and intriguing title. And uh, also, I looked in your uh, your notes, and you originally grew up in the New Orleans, Louisiana area. So now you're in Ohio. This book has a very unique, I guess, background or or history. What was the thing about the history and the fact that this is a fictional novel that intrigued you? All right. First of all, this is an alternative history. None of this really happened. Right. At least not the novel. Okay. It's based on an alternative way of ending the war between the states. I have been interested in that ever since I was a teenager. And I have probably read every book that's been written on the subject of the war between the states. And every one of them caused me the same question as to how could this have turned out differently? And the one 
it was published as um, a serial in Life magazine, a McKinley Cantor. Uh, that had the war turning when Grant is thrown from his horse at Vicksburg, and it was from the Vicksburg campaign that things took a different turn. And I decided, no, I'm not going to go that road. I'm going to find another place where the war will turn. And then I looked at the Chattanooga campaign, and it seemed to me that's the place to begin it. Uh, so I had Pap Thomas picked off by a sniper. I had his attack against Missionary Ridge fail. And then I had the Confederates do some things they didn't really do. For instance, leaving Longstreet with Bragg for another month, mm -hmm. which uh, stifled the attack on Lookout Mountain. And having Polk's division be brought over from Mississippi to take up a position on the north bank of the Tennessee and make the siege complete. Th this is managed to catch Grant in that bag. Is <laughs> you you have yes, you, you have had a uh, as you mentioned a long term uh, love of history. This is an intriguing approach to that others have have uh, thought about that uh, perhaps uh, the United States might be a different uh, different nation if uh, the South had won or if there were maybe two nations. Uh, is that sort of the premise of what you're trying to to get people to think about? Well, the Confederate goal was that there would be two nations. That was always what they wanted, was independence. And uh, in this book, they achieve it. It takes, uh, of course, Lincoln losing the election of 1864, McClellan becoming president of the United States. But this all happens, and they do achieve this um, independent status. Now, after that, the rest of the book is about how this family lives day-to-day -day life in New Orleans as a Confederate city beginning in 1909. The the main character then is your family. They're, they're, the narrative is through their eyes. Yes, the Kaufman family. Uh, that's this, the family with whom I'm dealing as the protagonists. In fact, there's the patriarch George, and then there are three generations of the family that are developed more carefully. And... Uh, the beginning one is with um, Eric, George's son, and it begins in 1909 when he meets the girl that he eventually marries, which is Stephanie Weaver from Tulsa, Oklahoma, who is half Cherokee. Now, originally I had made uh, uh, the war a prologue, but now it has been moved back to become an appendix. Hmm. Appendix A is actually the first part that I wrote. And uh, it is now something you read after the book is finished. In, 19, in I'm sorry, 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. Yes. And that was the next step. After that, I did go down after Katrina and looked at it, and the things that were gone uh, struck me immediately. West End was gone. Um, the camps on the lakeshore were gone. There were things that will never be put back. And I knew I remembered them, so I started writing about them. Even though I wasn't born until 40 years after this all happened, uh, I wrote about 1909. Hmm. The, the, the title of the book, uh, Fried Oyster. Okay, and then I developed that family. Yeah. Uh, yes, sir. The title of the book, Fried Oyster Sandwiched, is that, Fried Oyster Sandwich? is that a, a nod to New Orleans, or, or how would you describe that title? 
It is a nod to New Orleans, although it actually does occur in the book. Uh, the middle generation protagonist, whose name is Henry, uh, uh, has a penchant for those. And he uh, goes to lunch. Uh, he works at the Joan Hotel and goes to lunch at a little shop, a diner on Canal Street. And his favorite thing to order there is the fried oyster sandwich. Mm. So it does actually appear in the book as a... Uh, something Henry likes. Uh-huh. And later on, we find out that his daughter Flavia likes them, too. Now, Pastor Gross, okay. Pastor Gross, how long did it take you to assemble not only the facts of uh, of your story, the histor- historical uh, document or, or uh, novel that you've written, but uh, to actually get it into print? When did you start on this, and how long did it take? I started when I retired in 2008, and I finished it, uh, the first draft, in 2012, and I sent it to the Library of Congress and had it copyrighted in 2012, but I didn't try to publish it. I didn't know that it would work. Uh, however, four years later, in uh, 2016, I sent it to Author House, and they put me in touch with an editor, and I worked with that editor and redid a few things. For instance, I had written it pretty much from a narrator's point of view. Mm-hmm. And then I changed it to being mainly a conversational uh, communication. There's still narration in it. There has to be when things move quickly. But uh, for the most part, we learn things now through the dialogue of the characters. Uh, there's one question I have for you, sir. The uh, current status of yeah. uh, of populace, uh, there's a political correctness that's been going around. In fact, even the removal of uh, of Southern history in some of the small towns. Did you have any concerns about that in uh, releasing this novel? And in uh, retrospect, are there things in here that uh, are going to be uh, controversial? Well, I'm sure a lot of things will be controversial, but uh, as far as the timeline on this, uh, this book was actually published before the attack on the monuments. Beautiful. It was published in April of 2017, and the attack on the monuments began about a month later when barbarians took over New Orleans. I I happen to agree with you personally, but I'm curious uh, whether you've had uh, feedback from from readers. Uh, What has been the response from those who have read it, or have you had an opportunity to distribute it to uh, many people? Well, I do have have several um, reviews, and I would say they're all very fair. They're not necessarily all favorable, but they are all very fair. Uh, the one that I liked the best was the one from uh, Clarion, which emphasizes the personal love of the people. I've made it very careful to keep the dialogue as polite as possible throughout the book. I am a very cerebral person, and therefore the conflicts in the book are cerebral and the resolutions are cerebral. The characters then They're are generally relatable then? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, the characters are definitely either people I knew growing up or um, people who were doing like I do. Lutheranism is a very strong factor in the book. I grew up a Lutheran. Mm. And you'll see that this is coloring everything. George, the man who came over, came over from Germany in the 1860s seeking um, opportunity, economic opportunity primarily. Uh, He didn't want to join the army. He didn't want to fight in the Franco-Prussian War. 
So he came to St. Louis. And there he tried various things, grain elevator work, um, teamster, things like that. When he got to the river, he saw that there were riverboats flying this flag with the three bars and the stars in the canton, the flag, the official flag of the Confederacy. And he wanted to know what that was about. And they told him that this was another country that was down the river. So he decided to go down to New Orleans and see what it was like. Mm. And for a while, he was in the Merchant Marine. And then he decided he didn't want to go away from the city because he was married then. Um, and he took on with the Jackson Avenue Ferry and eventually became captain. So at the beginning of the book, he's already the captain, and his son is about 20 years old. Uh, since you've embarked on becoming an author, has this uh, passion ignited in you again, and are you wanting to continue the, the journey? Well, there are a couple of things I have thought about. Uh, I was thinking of a sequel, in fact, hmm. in which the um, Union and Confederacy come together again. And I was thinking of having a couple become the microcosm of that. What I was dealing with was how would the world be different? How would everyday life be different if the Confederates had won? And you have to read the book to find that out. But I will tell you this much. Both the Confederates and the Union stay out of the, the World War, and there is no Second World War. Mm. That would be a great, uh, great there idea. Is no Second World War at all, because first of all, the Germans don't lose the First World War, <laughs> and there's really no need for a second one. Um, there is an altercation in Manchuria, just as happened historically. Only the West does not become involved in it. It almost does, but it doesn't quite. The French and the Japanese work out. Uh, a workable piece, and that never flares up. Uh, Pastor Gross, uh, you have uh, creativity that runs through your family, your family history. Uh, your illustrator is related, is that correct? That's my sister. Yes. Oh, yes, Peggy Beckwith, who illustrates the book, is my sister. And, and she lives in Knoxville, Tennessee. Knoxville, Tennessee, and you've included her, her work throughout the book, throughout the novel. Well, I asked her to uh, to make a certain number of illustrations, and she did. Uh, she illustrates the uh, the Garden District House. She illustrates the camp at the lakefront. Uh, she illustrates the Café du Monde. Uh, she has a picture of a teletype machine, because uh, Henry works at a radio station in the 1930s. And I constantly mention the teletype machine, and then start to think, you know, most of my readers don't know what that is. <laughs> so I had her draw a teletype machine. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, you've done a wonderful job on this release. But, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's been something I've always been close to. Fabulous. The title of the book, again, is Fried Oyster Sandwich, and my guest author has been Pastor, although it doesn't uh, list that way on the cover, Lloyd E. Gross. Sir, my listeners need to get a copy of this. How do they do so? You can get it on Amazon right now. Uh, I think the hardbound is $28. That's too much, but that's what they're charging. Uh, and the paperback is $14. Of course, if you live in my area, I'm selling it from my house. Uh, there you go. And it's, I, I will, and yes. Yeah. I sell it for half that much. 
We won't tell anybody. I, yes, I sell it for <laughs> half that much for my house. However, that's the first edition, and there are some typos and things in the first edition that were corrected in a second edition. Beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing your story today. This is a little over 200 pages, so it's not, uh, it, it is a, an easy, uh, kind of a, a lilting read and, uh, is intriguing because of the characters and the setting for sure. The title again is Fried Oyster Sandwich. So, listeners, you can do a search under that name online and find it. And also under the author's name, Lloyd E. Gross, G-R-O-S-S. Thank you, sir, for joining me today and sharing your story. You're welcome, Jay. God bless you. Have a great afternoon. Well, great visiting with you for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. For Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Children of a Northern Kingdom, subtitled A Story of the Strangeite, I think that's pronounced, Mormons in Wisconsin and on Beaver Island, Michigan. Did I pronounce that right, Elaine? Stringite is what it's usually called. Okay. Stringite. Stringite. All right. Very good. Okay. Well, this is a, a different title, a unique title. Uh, Elaine is joining me from Michigan. Tell me the background of this, Elaine. Uh, how long did it take to write this book, 288 pages, and what was the uh, inspiration behind writing it? Well, I've always been fascinated by the stories of the um, of the early Mormons uh, and what they went through, and they had a very hard time wherever they went. They were kind of the, uh, well, like the born-again Christians of the 19th century, and uh, they wanted to live together and in, in, a, uh, in a group. And most people wanted were individual and wanted to uh, look askance at people who wanted to stay together in spite of persecution and a lot, that kind of thing. And these particular Mormons um, that I write about the, uh, for this uh, Northern Kingdom book, they have just just been kicked out of Nauvoo, their city on the Mississippi, and a lot of different groups uh, went out from the city trying to get away from the persecution. And these came north and went to Wisconsin and had a city called Boree, Wisconsin, stayed there for a while. And then heard that land was very cheap up in northern Michigan, especially mm. on Beaver Island. Mm -hmm. And Beaver Island is this uh, wonderful island about 25 miles out in the middle of Lake Michigan. Really? And it is just beautiful, and they felt they would be uh, at peace there, and no one would bother them. And so this particular group, under the direction of a man named James Strang, uh, 
slowly migrated up to Beaver Island and tried to buy the land there and settle there and eventually uh, built up their church and their community. But they had uh, trouble from the neighbors. Uh, there were people there who didn't want them there. And people in on neighboring islands like Mackinac who uh, were not very favorably, uh, didn't look favorably on the Mount of the Mormons at all. Mm. And so they, they had a bit of trouble. And the reason I call it Northern Kingdom is because eventually James String uh, declared himself a king up there, <laughs> had a special ceremony, made himself a king. Now, this was sort of a, an honorary title, you know, like a, a, a duke or head of a church or pope mm. or something like that. But people got rather upset about this because, you know, uh, America had done away with its kings and yes. decided not to live under a monarchy. So, uh, for, but that's why I call it children of a northern kingdom. It was called a kingdom. It was, uh, he said, God has made us a kingdom. And uh, so they lived up there for a few years, and things things got really tense. And finally, uh, Mr. Strang was assassinated, and wow. the people had to leave the island. And they were driven off in a most uh, brutal and terrible way and had to leave everything they had behind, and families were separated. And so this is their their story in this book, the story of how they managed, how they lived, uh, what they tried to do, and what they'd hoped to do. And um, I don't know if that might answer some questions about well, why I call it Children of a Northern Kingdom. Yes. Now, the, the, if you may understand the history a little bit, uh, the, uh, the this particular group of, uh, of uh, citizens or Mormons that moved north or migrated north, they were leaving polygamy, if I understand the, the history right. Maybe I've got it backwards. Mm-hmm. And then when they got to, to Michigan and he declared himself king, he changed his mind and decided that polygamy was uh, was okay. Is that yeah. am I understanding um, it? That, uh, well, basically, uh, let's say uh, plural marriage or polygamy or celestial marriage or whatever you want to call it right. didn't wasn't really practiced fully until the, the, the largest body of Mormons made it out to Utah to the Salt Lake Valley. And before that, there had been uh, suspicions that this plural marriage was going on, but not everybody was doing it. And not everybody even knew about it. Hmm. And but the ones that did know about it, some of them were very, uh, very much opposed to it. <clears throat> and so, yes, the people uh, going north, following uh, Mr. Strang north, uh, were very much opposed to polygamy and didn't they didn't believe, think it belonged in a uh, in a Christian organization. But once they got up into Beaver Island, he started plural marriage himself. In fact, he had five wives. Hmm. He had one to begin with, and then it's very interesting. He fell in love with someone who was his secretary, and uh, he uh, invited a name for her. They called her Charlie Douglas and dressed her in men's clothing, <laughs> and she went with him on his trips, on his missionary journeys. Hmm. And it wasn't until later that he married her, and they discovered, you know, wow, she was a woman after all. Wow. And so, and then the others he, he married later, and the people that went with him to Beaver Island, they they sort of accepted this because they really, it was hard for them to get off the island. All their material possessions were there, their life, their lives were there. They felt uh, reasonably safe there. And so they they didn't make a big fuss about it. Mm. They just, uh, they sort of accepted it. But I don't, 
according to my research, uh, he and only a few others um, uh, practiced a plural marriage. Right. Most of them did not. Well, most most of them probably just uh, took a look and said, "Well, that's that's his uh, his his best bud, his Charlie, <laughs> best bud, Charlie." Yeah. Now, yeah. the uh, the book itself would you call it a, a historical novel? Is it is it uh, uh, is it only historical, or is it uh, is there some fiction also thrown in? I notice there's conversational uh, sentences in your book. How would you describe yeah, it, it? It's historical fiction. And uh, I have to say that all the dates mentioned in the novel are as accurate as I could make them. Mm. And all the things that happened are, are as historically accurate as I could uh, as I could discover them to be. And but there are a ser- series of characters which I made up, and some are historical, some are uh, well figments of my imagination. Uh-huh. But I I try to uh, make it as as lively and as interesting as possible. And Without messing up the history, I don't believe in, in uh, uh, you know, changing history to make it more interesting because you don't have to do that. This history, history is usually interesting enough as it, as it is. You don't have to uh, change it in any way or make up stuff that didn't happen. Well, this and so this book, if you want to learn about Beaver Island and the Mormons on Beaver Island, this this will teach you certainly. Yes, and two hundred and eighty-eight pages. That must have taken a while to research and uh, get all of your facts where you were comfortable with penning them to paper. How long did it take? Uh, I don't know. I've been I this project for a, oh, a lot of years. I started in nineteen eighty-eight with the first uh, book, and there have been uh, three books since then. There, there are four books in all. Hmm. And this Children of a Northern Kingdom is the last one. I would say I was, I'm fortunate to be in two historical societies. One is the, the Mormon Historical Association, and the other is called the John Whitmer Historical Association. And they're full of people who are doing the research and writing the books and writing the papers. And all I had to do was just to find, find what I, I considered to be uh, the, the, uh, what, what really happened or what um, might have really happened, since, you know, all history is based on, on uh, not knowing exactly what happened, but thinking that you know what happened. Absolutely. And so I, I put them together in my book and tried to... Um, would would you say there are some, I know, anytime you're dealing with historical fact and or fiction, yeah. you, you have uh, probably some characters that rise to the surface that may not have been well known. Or some incidences that were unique. Any of those things uh, jump out of the page when my readers read your book? Well, I think they'll be very interested in the in actually um, how, how the uh, let's see how shall I say this <laughs> oh, when uh, when Mister String Strang actually actually uh, made himself a king on the island. Hmm. That is. Uh, that I've described in detail because people were there that uh, observed it, and they described it. Hmm. And I think that's, that's kind of interesting how you go from a refugee people who are trying to find safety to a people who um, actually uh, declare themselves owner of the island and that they have a king. <laughs> um, now, it, it, it wasn't... Uh, and, 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 you know, people say, what well, was their fault? They were thrown off, but it wasn't really... There were a lot of people who were just trying their best to live and trying to live well and trying to live as, as uh, uh, simply as they can and as uh, kindly as they can. And they were persecuted as long as, uh, along with anyone who was 
um, not doing so well. And they were uh, accused of all sorts of things, like piracy and counterfeiting and all these things. And there might have been pirates on the Great Lakes at that time, and there probably were. Hmm. But there's no actual proof that the Mormons themselves were doing it. But they were accused of this. They were accused of uh, piracy and hijacking ships and stealing and all this kind of thing. Wow. And this kind of led to their downfall. They had, they had a bad press, so to speak. I, yes, I would think so. Beaver Island itself, how large an area uh, geographically is that? Well, let's see. It's about... Uh, I think it's about 12 miles long, and it's off the coast of Lake Michigan. It's about 25 miles out, and Lake Michigan at Charlevoix would be the nearest city. And um, as I mentioned, it's the island or in the book, but it was uh, full of all kinds of, uh, of game and fish and uh, things, things that crawled, <laughs> gone across the ice to live on Beaver Island. Hmm. I don't think there were... There were deer there at that time. Uh, there were a number of creatures that did that were on the island, but the fishing was just great, and you could have lived very well there. I think, and probably still can. It's yes, uh, fascinating that they would even locate or find an island like I guess the, the islands. I mean, there was discovery during that period, obviously. But well, this uh, is the, you, this is a large island, and um, the, the the great attraction was that it. The land was being offered for sale very cheaply, mm. and you could go up and buy the land. And there was, of course, uh, nowadays you have a little bit of trouble getting to the island. You have your choice of flying over or taking a boat ride for four hours to get there. Wow! And the same was back back in those days. They couldn't fly, but they would get on a boat, and it would take hours and hours to get uh, from Wisconsin up to Beaver Island. That was an incredible journey of that in that in that time frame. Right, and that's and, all described. Uh, yes. That's all described. Many were seasick, many, and uh, the weather was not very good, and there were uh, stormy seas. And uh, one one I, I describe one uh, particular journey that was just very very stormy, and 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 this is uh, documented as one of the journeys that these people took. The the book to get to the, the book itself uh, again is two hundred eighty eight pages and it I'm sure took a long time to get all of those facts and figures uh, where you were comfortable with them. Did you, you did you work from an outline when you write books? This again being your fourth uh, fourth released mm-hmm. novel. Do you write from from outlines or how do you uh, normally approach the writing process? Well, for the fiction, for, for the historical fiction, I I just. Yes, I do outline. I outline the, the period that I am covering and what happened during that, that period. And I have year-by-year year descriptions of what went on in the island and what went on with these people at that time. And then I sort of make a story around that. Beautiful. And, and, and so I have them mentioning what happened. For instance, um, oh, at what, at what point, at one point, James Strang who was, um, you know, who was really not a blackguard. He was he was a, a rather intelligent person, and he, um, he was well versed in the law, and he uh, was an excellent speaker, and apparently had what what people call charisma because he was able to attract a lot of people to him and to this uh, island venture. And at one point, he was even uh, even became a member of the uh, Michigan State Legislature, hmm. uh, and he 
apparently served very well and served uh, um, tried to do his best. No shenanigans that we know of. So, uh, <laughs> he, um, Other than his best bud, uh, Charlie. That's uh, that's the only thing. Well, that Charlie. Well, then he, then he had other wives too. And <laughs> yeah. in fact, it's it's really neat. He had a wife. <laughs> he had a, a wife assigned to each uh, detail of the house. Like one would take care of the children, one would uh, take care of the housework and the cooking and the cleaning, and one would take care of the business affairs, and that was Charlie. Wow. And so he he had things pretty well sorted out there. Well, he's a great organizer, apparently. Uh, this 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 is yeah, uh, right. yeah, yeah. If you like if yeah. you like historical fiction and uh, you know history in general, this book would be something that would be of of interest to you. Two hundred eighty eight pages. The title of which is "Children of a Northern Kingdom," and my author Elaine Steenhunt. Thank you for joining me today. Where do my listeners get a copy of this? They can get it from Amazon dot com. Or Barnes and Noble, or Author House, AuthorHouse dot com, um, or they can go to any other any bookstore. I believe and order it. Absolutely, they can by name uh, Children of a Northern Kingdom or the author's name Elaine E L A I N E, and Steenhon is uh, S T. I E N O N. They can do a search under your name and find you okay. out there on the on the internet. Thank you again for joining me today and sharing your story. Well, thank you. And I also want to tell you about my, I do have a website. Excellent. www.ensonpublishing.com. And you can see the other books and you can see the description of this book. Fabulous. Ensign Publishing. Correct. All right. Ensign. Yeah. Okay. Pleasure visiting with you. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. <laughs>